This episode of Speakeasy is brought to you by Craftmark Homes. Ready to move? Buy with Craftmark Homes, the DMV's premier private home builder for more than 30 years. Homes are ready for summer move-in. For open hours and virtual tours, visit craftmarkhomes.com. That's craftmarkhomes.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy, the Alexandria Times podcast. I'm Missy Schrott, editor of the Alexandria Times, and today I'm joined by Tom Gale, director of operations at Virtue Feed and Grain, an American restaurant located at the base of King Street. Tom is also a local expert on all things bourbon, having recently graduated from a program and earned the title of executive bourbon steward. Thanks for joining me today, Tom. Thank you for having me, Missy. Um, So we have a lot of good stuff to cover today. We're going to talk about bourbon, of course, um, and also what it's like being in the restaurant industry at this point in time during the coronavirus pandemic. But I'd like to start with your background, Tom. Um, Why don't you share with me a little bit about where you're from and how you got that wonderful accent you have? Absolutely. Accent? I have an accent? I didn't know that. I am from, I am a child of the northern neck of Virginia which is one of the oldest parts of not only Virginia, but the country itself. Primarily, I am from the county of Lancaster and the little hometown of Lively, uh, Virginia. Uh, My actual home was in a place called Litwalton, which is right next to Moratico. Why that's significant is that is one of the, uh, well, that is the place, the birthplace of Mary Ball. That was George Washington's mother. I uh, grew up there. Went to school there, later in life, uh, attending college in North Carolina and of all places, Cincinnati, Ohio. My background actually is in funeral service. I am a licensed uh, funeral director with the Commonwealth of Virginia, now going on some 30 plus years. Retired, my wife and I both uh, are children of the Northern Neck. We enjoyed many good times there and still maintain a residence in the Northern Neck as we do here in uh, Old Town Alexandria. The path of life took us uh, from a working career, which we were very blessed. We're able to retire early and move uh, to Florida. We always wanted to have the opportunity to take, uh, take our boat to Florida through the intracoastal and have the opportunity to do, uh, do traveling and visit places that we hadn't. We did not want to be members of the Wish I Had a Club. And that's, uh, that's exactly what we did. And of all places, ended up in Key West, Florida. And that's where we come to meet this wonderful family that we're now associated with. So kind of in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's what we do. You know, in addition to that, I'm a 100-ton uh, master licensed captain uh, through the Maritime and Coast Guard regulations. And uh, it gave us a wonderful a wonderful set of adventures, and we, we took advantage of it. And life has now deposited us here in Old Town, Alexandria. So how did you end up in Alexandria? Quite interesting. Uh, Florida, as you know, um, is uh, prone for beautiful weather in the wintertime. It's also quite well known for its hurricanes. What led us to Alexandria actually was a hurricane by the name of Irma. We had moved residents from about mid-Florida, from the Stewart area, Borough Beach, to Key West, Florida. 
And in Key West, my wife and I had the opportunity to have what we call our, our fun job, which was working for the A&B Marina, A&B Lobster House, the Alonzo's. It was the A&B Complex, we like to call it. And that's where we met the wonderful uh, William Smith family. And William is the owner and operator of Virtue Feeding Grain, along with his family, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Gene and Sue Smith of Shreveport, Louisiana. They, in like turn, were in need of dockmasters after the hurricane. A number of the people left, and we said, sure, this would be fun. Well, my wife is a banker and has a banking background, and they were also in need of someone in the office. It was just a perfect fit. We were exposed to everything we loved in life. Boats, water, great food, and wonderful people. Mr. Smith, in like turn, Mr. Smith being William, who is the current owner and operator of Virtue Feed and Grain, um, told us that his daughter attended, or was attending at the time, uh, Episcopal High School here in Old Town, Alexandria, and knew we were from Virginia. He then moved his residence from both Key West and uh, Shreveport here to Old Town and invited my wife and I to participate in this project with him and his family. Knowing that we were from Virginia, um, Northern Virginia and the Northern Neck are two different areas, but they're still close in proximity to whereas we've known about it, knew about it all our life. Ironically, the first time we said no, we said cold weather, back up in Virginia, higher taxes, and then, uh, then my wife and I got to thinking, well, you know, one day grandchildren are going to come into the future. We're going to have to do one of two things. We either have to um, move back to Virginia or buy a seat on the airplane because mama's going to be close to her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Well, lo and behold, the opportunity presented itself. He invited us back one more time, and we, uh, we graciously accepted. And so here we are. It's the greatest thing we could have ever done, absolutely unequivocally. So both you and your wife work at Virtue now, is that correct? My, my wife is the uh, is the office manager and in charge of the accounting here at Virtue Feeding Grain. She is Miss Lisa. Um, she is uh, she is the the golden goose. I call her. Nothing nothing happens without Miss Lisa watching all the books and every invoice that comes into the building. <laughs> Miss Lisa is the favorite child. I'm I'm secondary. <laughs> and what do you do at Virtue? I technically, my formal position is that I am the director of operations uh, and executive bourbon steward here at Virtue Feeding Grain. I like to think of myself as being a hybrid, uh, as William uh, coined me the phrase, I'm a hybrid. I do everything from first arriving, one of the early ones here at the restaurant in the morning to make sure everything is up and running, uh, to ensure that the operations physically and uh, staff-wise, which we have other folks primarily take care of the staff, uh, that it's all working. I'm the guy that makes sure that when you push the button, something happens. And that's, that's my job. Everything from receiving orders to making sure that the, uh, that the inventory for the spirits and the bourbon is just right every day. Mm-hmm. So this is not work. This is still, I'm still on vacation every day. I love it. I, I love, I absolutely love looking forward to come to work every day. It's, it's mm-hmm. a wonderful feeling. And my wife is more so than I. 
every day. So I'd like to talk about your executive bourbon steward title. Yeah, I, I understand love talking you went about through a program it. to get that. Yeah, why don't you fill us in? What does that title mean, um, and what can you, I guess, do with that? To be an executive bourbon steward, let's let's put it in perspective. The in the wine world, in the wine world, we have wine sommeliers. That is their forte: wine, knowing about it, the essence, the different types. In the beer world, we have cicerones. A beer cicerone here again knows about the different beers, the types, where they're from, both craft and uh, major breweries. In the bourbon world, we have what are known as stewards. We are individuals that know bourbons, not only from taste and profile, but the neat thing about bourbon is the history. All bourbon has a history. Now, all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. And that's one of the concepts you first learn about becoming a bourbon steward. And I, um, I live it. I breathe it. I love to talk about bourbon. I love the history behind it and the story. And what's so unique is that bourbon and the native whiskeys actually had their roots, their genesis right here in Virginia. That is what began because Kentucky, and I remind my uh, fellow distillers in the great Commonwealth of Kentucky that remember you're a child of Virginia because Kentucky at one time was a part of Virginia. So that kind of gives me the little friendly one up on them all the time. And right down the road here, one of the largest distillers of rye whiskey was uh, our first president, George Washington at the Mount Vernon Distillery. And that kind of adds into a neat history about it. I, I like to think of some time ago, Barbara Mandrell, who was a country singer, had a song that she was country before country was cool. I like to think of myself as being, I was bourbon before bourbon was cool. <laughs> I always have been. My family, my father, his father before him. And that has been our drink of choice as a native Virginian for forever and a day. The story and the history behind it. To be a bourbon steward uh, required a considerable amount of classroom time, book time, knowing the history behind it, knowing the, the makeup of the profiles, what we call our mash bills. Mash bills are what uh, the bourbon is made of. And to be considered a bourbon, which is by document uh, signed into law in 1964 by uh, President Johnson, that bourbon is a native spirit. It doesn't have to be made in Kentucky, but it has to be crafted in the United States to be considered bourbon. Bourbon has to have a mash bill, a recipe or a makeup of at least 51% corn, the remainder being made up of either rye or wheat and barley included. It must be placed in new charred oak containers. We say barrels, but the technical term is a container. And if it is aged less than, less than four years, an age statement has to be placed on it. That is what uh, surface level becomes bourbon. And any reflection of that then doesn't become bourbon. Any, any, Variation of that becomes whiskey. So this is why um, uh, this is why I say all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. Right. I don't think a lot of people know that. That's interesting. It is. It's it's the neat story behind it. Mm -hmm. The father of bourbon actually came from Virginia, and I love this story. This is one of my favorites. We even have a flight of bourbon here, uh, and a lot of folks question this and. 
I still think it has the most validity. The father of Bourbon actually came from Virginia. Uh, he actually, uh, of all things, was a, uh, a storekeeper, a gentleman of a business nature, and he led one of the largest exoduses from Virginia into Kentucky uh, back in the very early 1700s. His name was Elijah Craig. And Elijah Craig had the idea of telling his followers when they were trying to say how different ways we can make a living, what can we do to uh, generate income, what can we do with what we have. Well, they had these native grains, and they were able to make a mash, which in like turn was placed into barrels, because that's what they had when they moved out. This is what we shipped, you know, various things in. Uh, but the, the problem with the barrels is that to make a barrel was quite an effort. And the barrels they had were uh, not in the best of shape. So he came up with the idea of, we'll clean the barrels out the best you can. Some of which even required them to be burnt, to burn off the bad wood, to make them usable again. Not knowing what he was doing, he was actually charring the inside of a barrel, which makes the barrel then accepting the whiskey, which becomes bourbon, named after Bourbon County originally, uh, the House of Bourbon from France. It made it, uh, give it its dark color and bring out the essence and the flavor of it. What's the most unique part about this entire story is that Elijah Craig was actually a Baptist minister. So I think to myself, well, I'm an Episcopalian. You know what we kind of, uh, of, uh, of rousing we get when it comes time for the whiskey and the bourbon. So the Baptist actually beat us to it. <laughs> that is a fun story. <laughs> it is fun. And that's what that's what bourbon is. It brings people together about the story, uh, the history of it. And that's just one of many. That's what is so uh, that's what's so wonderful about about uh, becoming a bourbon steward. This episode of Speakeasy is brought to you by Craftmark Homes. Ready to move? Buy with Craftmark Homes. You'll love their luxury rooftop townhomes at Fillmore Place of West Alexandria. Just minutes from the metro, Amazon HQ2, and Old Town Alexandria, this community has homes ready for summer movement. Visit FillmorePlaceWestAlexandria.com. That's FillmorePlaceWestAlexandria.com. Equal housing opportunity. So I know you're the mastermind behind a lot of the bourbon selections at Virtue. Um, and for our listeners who haven't been there, you guys just have shelves upon shelves of different <laughs> bourbons. Um, so I know you could probably yeah. talk about them all day, but are there any interesting stories behind certain bottles that have been hard to acquire or that you're especially excited about getting? Absolutely. One of the first things, the Commonwealth of Virginia is what we call an alcohol control state, meaning that we have to purchase alcohol from a state store. Uh, there's a very set of, a very, very a stringent set of regulations of which we adhere to, to the T. They're non-negotiable things. Many of our hard-to-get bourbons are purchased or able to be purchased through way of lottery. Now, a lottery in Virginia with alcoholic products such as the rare items in the bourbon world, Pappy Van Winkle, that is one that is over the top. Anything of the Van Winkle collection um, is going to be by lottery. If you are fortunate enough to win a lottery, that doesn't mean you win the bottle, it means you win the right to purchase 
the bottle. And that's what we have been successful at over the past year. A number of different limited releases are done that way. And it's very fair. It is very fair because it gives everybody an opportunity, both individuals and it gives licensed establishments such as Virtue the opportunity to have these and then to pass it on to our uh, our guests that come to Virtue. Pappy Van Winkle or some that we have. We have one of the rarest collections of, um, of Michters. Michters, you probably have seen that on the television show, Billions. Um, we have a 20-year-old bottle of Michters, which was very hard to come by. I remember the day that it became available. I just said, yes. And then my wife, who is the bookkeeper, says, how much you pay for it? I said, I don't know. I don't remember. I didn't even ask. Yeah, I found out that night getting on the train coming back home from Richmond. I paid $700 for that one bottle. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I said, uh, she said, are you going to tell Will or me? <laughs> um, I said, I've either done something very wonderful for the restaurant or I just wrote my own um, my own firing slip. It It's ended up being one of the... Uh, one of our flights called the ultimate flight that it's a part of. Um, those are some that I have in addition to a lot of our old Fitzgerald, uh, very limited releases of Angel's Envy. All of these are very familiar to people in the bourbon and whiskey world. Uh, Will, my, I call him my brother by my other mother. Um, he is a Scotch man. It doesn't mean I like him any less. It means he is a Scotch profile. So when people of Scotch nature come, I refer them to uh, to William about that. He's very good at it. Very good. Uh, the different profiles of, of Scotch. And this is what's so unique about, about Virtue. We have folks that they all have their special niche that brings them together to say, we can we can make something very special occur for you as an experience, not just a place to come eat. So you covered the difference between bourbon and whiskey. What is the difference between bourbon and scotch? Bourbon and Scotch. Well, Scotch has to be made uh, to be called true Scotch. Now, we have some Virginia whiskeys that have a profile of Scotch, but true Scotch must be made or crafted in Scotland, and they're very particular about it. The spelling also. Whiskey uh, is spelled with a, an E-Y. Scotch would be spelled with just a Y. Uh, scotch does not have to adhere to the rules and regulations of making bourbon, but Scotch, uh, scotch is a little more leadway. Scotch can be used and placed in used bourbon barrels, of which a lot of that and Irish whiskeys are of the uh, of the same way. You have a lot of Irish whiskey influence because a lot of the Scots and a lot of the Irish came to America. And these are very important, uh, very important things to know because actually the Irish were the ones that really taught us all how to make whiskey. It's just the different variations, how they made it. Um, one of, our, one of our favorite whiskeys, which is a bottled in bond, meaning that it has to come under a four-year very strict rule, is a Henry McKenna. Henry McKenna was an Irishman who came to this country with little in his pocket other than the recipe how to make whiskey. Last year, that one little bottle of whiskey selling for maybe $30 was the number one, was the number one whiskey at the San Francisco Spirits Competition. Immediately when that was found out, the shelves cleaned. Boom, gone. It was hard to get it for months on end. And now it's a, it's a little more available. Well, I feel like I should be sipping on a glass of bourbon while we're recording I, right now. I, I, I know a guy. <laughs> I could make that happen. 
All right. Um, so shifting a little bit away from bourbon, um, why don't sure. we talk about the restaurant community at this point in time during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, I know a lot of restaurants have been struggling or completely shifting their business models to offer delivery. Um, thankfully, we're in phase two now and you guys are able to mm. reopen indoor yeah. dining. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it has been like you for you being involved in the restaurant community at this time? Absolutely. What I'd like to do with your permission is to go back to the genesis. When we received word that we were going to be closing down, I remember it was in March. Mm-hmm. And immediately we formulated plans. What are we going to do? Well, first and foremost, we're going to comply. That's not negotiable. We complied with all of the requests made. The uh, unique thing about Virtue that when we got the word, um, immediately the entire staff, both what I refer to as front of the house, which are the servers, the bartenders, and then the back of the house, the cook staff, the chefs, the, the prep chefs, we all came together and completely took the restaurant apart. We cleaned everything, sanitized, disinfected, and we made preparations to say now, we, we're going to be closed for quite a period of time. We don't know how long, but we know this is going to occur. So we prepped the restaurant to uh, make her like a, a battleship, if you will. And I refer to that because the, uh, the Navy term, the, the, the two family members I call the matriarch and patriarch of the Smith family, uh, Mr. Gene and Sue Smith, he was a Navy man. So we had everything serviced, put together, cleaned up, taken apart, sanitized, started there, and then started working on little projects there afterwards. The entire time we were closed, two things occurred. First and foremost, no one, and I emphasize this, no one at Virtue lost their job. The Smith family, out of their pocket, made sure every single staff member was paid every two weeks like normal before we even qualified, filed for any of the uh, PPP money. Secondly, we had projects going on the entire time. We literally cleaned this place, uh, Missy, from top to bottom. We sanitized even the ducking system, the air breathing system, reinstalled new HEPA filters. So what was humanly possible, we did any construction, any, um, we even did some redecorating. All of this took place at that time. While all of this was going on, we kept a close eye on what the state and the health departments were saying we could and could not do. We were a little bit later opening for takeout. because you know Virtue, Virtue is primarily a dine on premises restaurant. But we formulated a great plan and it became to be one of our successes having takeout available. A little more challenging. And this is one of the areas where I guess going back to my days in funeral service really, really paid off because knowing how to handle such things as what we called um, universal precautions, we now call standard operating procedures in cleaning and making sanitizing and personal hygiene, number one. Washing of the hands, wearing of the mask, using the gloves. Um, 
we we survived pretty good through it. And we came back out and we are now open at 50%. Still different, uh, but it is um, looking forward to hopefully in time to come to full capacity once again. And it's working, it's working quite well. Uh, reservations are through the company called Open Table that gives a fair chance for everybody to get a reservation. The patio area, we do not do reservations on because that's first come, first serve. But uh, it usually moves along pretty well. And we're, we're, we're positive that, that uh, with, the, with the new things we put in place, uh, new procedures, it's going, to be, it's going to get much better. What kind of feedback are you getting from customers so far? I know that a lot of people are still a little nervous about going out. Well, on the other hand, some people are just eager to be out in public, interacting with people again. What kind of customers are you getting? It, it, the, the, the vast majority, the great majority, the overwhelming majority are elated that we're open. Uh, we have a lot of regulars. Uh, Will likes to refer to Virtue as being the, the tourist place where the locals come to. And it has been truly it's been good to see them. It's like long lost friends and families. We get to see you again. You're here with us. Uh, you have your certain people that are here the same day every week, sitting in the same seats. And you know, it's a little different because we don't have much indoor seating now, no bar seating at all. It has been really good. Now we've had some folks that have, um, uh, have been uh, special to have to deal with. Within the industry, we've been maintaining um, close contact with some folks and reading all of the industry websites. Uh, some folks are still a bit nervous. You do what is requested of you. We do a little bit more. And a lot of folks think, well, maybe we should do more than, than what we're doing. Very few do we have of that nature. My suggestion is if you do not feel comfortable and you think you would be um, not enjoying your meal or your experience, then please wait. Wait. I know it's hard. Uh, maybe select takeout. But if you don't feel comfortable with that situation, don't put yourself in that situation just to be participating. I, I, um, I encourage that highly. Has the pandemic taught you anything about yourself, about restaurants, or about Alexandria, just going through all of that? Yes, absolutely. You remember the movie some years ago, um, it was called The Karate Kid. Mm -hmm. um, and little Danny was wanting to learn the art of karate. So Mr. Miyagi took him in and says, okay, I need you to paint the fence. I need you to wax the car. I need you to sand the floor. And he said, just don't do it. There's a way I want you to do this. Wax on, wax off. Paint up, paint down. The reason I tell you that is it's going back to my old life in funeral service of learning the basics. You, you want to immediately jump to the front. But as Frank Lord Wright once said, simplicity is the essence of good design. Master those simple things. Make sure that you truly understand sanitation. Make sure you understand the importance of washing your hands. Why do we cover our faces? Why are we using these masks? Why are we having to use all these gloves? We didn't do it before. We do it now. And hopefully we can return to some normalcy, but not yet. So what we're doing now is learning what we already know. Once again, 
to make it a part of our daily routine in serving our families. I see the entire restaurant community here in Alexandria, uh, and we've come together. A lot of us have come together, so very much more so than, than even in the past. And we assist each other in this. It's all the time, it says, hey, do you have any more sodium hypochlorite? Do you have any table wipes? Do you have any? And we make sure everybody's got it covered. We take temperatures every day, every day. We make sure that anybody that comes into the building has a mask. It has taught me what I already knew, but it's put it into a perspective that this old dog can learn new tricks and hopefully the younger of us make it a part of their daily routine uh, here out in funeral service, a part of the restaurant, making sure that we do what is required of us to make for a wonderful experience. Um, well, Tom, we end our show each month with a question that our previous guest asked the following guest without knowing that it would be you. Um, so our guest last month was Alexandria Symphony Orchestra Director James Ross. And his question is, what have you seen this springtime that you are noticing for the very first time? I, um, I listened to your last broadcast and I thought about that when you asked that question. And it immediately came to me, the question that I would ask, one, one morning, uh, William, uh, Mr. Smith sent me a picture in the springtime at the, um, at the middle part of, of uh, us being in COVID lockdown of Union Street. And there were no cars. There was no activity. There was no one there. And I remember it was some like post-apocalyptic to see that. There was a book written some years ago called Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And it dealt with um, the use of pesticides and such and how it could make the spring be quiet. And I remember getting out of the car that morning after he sent me that picture to come into work. And what I saw this spring I had never seen before. To be in Old Town at a time of morning, total silence. No planes were flying, no people were walking, no trucks were making deliveries. And I looked out off of our patio to the waterfront park and I saw a glistening of a few flowers, some daffodils is what they were, blooming. And what seemed to be a lifetime was actually probably about a minute. And in the far distance, I heard a flock of geese honking. And it reassured me by seeing that and hearing that. The silence was deafening, Missy. But when that broke that silence, it reassured me that we're going to be okay. That we're going to be just fine. We are going to go through this and we're going to come out better on the other side. That's what I saw this spring that I had never seen before in the many years I've been on this earth. And it gave me reassuring hope that we're going to be just fine. That's a beautiful answer. Um, so you get to ask a question for our next month's guest. Um, what would you like to ask them? I would like to ask next month's guest this simple question. From where we are right now, from what we've been through in this country, 
with COVID and the many other plethora of things that we've had to endure. Where do you see us as a community of Alexandria one year from now? That's what I'd like to ask. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure and an honor, Missy. It truly has. And thank you for what you do for us here in this community and you at the Alexandria Times. Thank you very much. <laughs>